Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thank you, Lloyd. You know, I was recently reading on the internet a great blog. It's called the Digital Media Lawyer Blog. And I read this blog by David Johnson. It's called David Johnson's Digital Media Lawyer Blog. And it was an interesting article about what happens when a company fails to expeditiously implement state-of-the-art security measures. And it can create tremendous liability for negligence and all sorts of data breach cases. And we've been hearing about data breaches all over the place. We've even heard about data breaches here at the University of California, Irvine. And as many of our businesses drive by and listen to this, they may have experienced data breaches that they've had to reveal to their potential victims. So we're going to talk about that today with our digital media lawyer. He's wonderful. Let me tell you a little bit about David D. Johnson. He is of counsel with a great law firm in Los Angeles, Jeffers, Mangels, Butler, and Mamaro LLP. That's JMBM Litigation Group. And he specializes in digital media law and complex litigation. David's complex litigation practice includes state, federal, and international commercial officers and directors liability and mass tort litigation. He's a member of the American Bar, the LA Bar, and the Association of Business Trial Lawyers. And he went to school in Texas, and he is a member of the State Bar of California. He does a great job, and I really enjoy reading his blog. You can find more about his blog at digitalmedialawyerblog.com and more about the law firm where he is of counsel at jmbm.com. David, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here, Mari. Well, I enjoyed reading your blog, so we're going to talk a little about that because we're hearing every single day about data breaches everywhere from hospitals to big corporations, the financial industry, universities are, are big ones. And so it's it's not getting any better. We found out that last year uh, identity theft increased 22%. And now we've got red flag rules by the federal government that people, you know, many companies are going to be considered either financial companies or creditors, and they're going to have to take some preventive action. So there's a lot of interesting stuff. And you you were uh, writing about a real interesting case, the Shams Yackel case. So lots of stuff going on. Now, tell me, I, I know I keep hearing stories about hackers, who are uh, able to get in access to business bank accounts and take away, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, has there been a real increase in this type of crime? Uh, there actually has. In August of this year, the FDIC actually issued a warning specifically saying that in the past 12 months there had been a major increase in losses and what they call electronic funds transfer fraud. 
That's when somebody uses your online account to take money from your account and send it elsewhere, out of the country often. Yes. You know, this has even happened to, to my own assistant, actually, with her HSA account. But this is why I always tell people never use a debit card, because the debit card number can be used online without a PIN. It can be used by fax without a PIN or by phone without a PIN. And then, of course, they're hacking in and just making these electronic transfers, and you don't even know about it unless you sign up for these alerts. I'll tell you, with the Bank of America, I have now signed up for every alert for every account I have with my retainer account, my business account, my personal account. Anytime there's any change, I get an alert because I'm scared to death of this kind of thing. So what, what about the hackers? What kinds of hackers um, and attacks are we seeing today? Well, you're really seeing two kinds of attacks. You're seeing a lot of attacks that are directed at the bank's own online systems itself using such things as, you may have heard of this term, SQL, injection fraud, kind of a fancy term. It essentially means that a hacker is able to go onto the login screen uh, for a banking system and actually instead of putting in a username and a password, put in code and get access to the bank's databases. Wow. And hackers have been able to do this and, and get access to customer uh, uh, account numbers, PIN numbers, password numbers, and, you know, in one case, uh, stole over 130 million credit card numbers. Mm. Um, there's just been, a, there, there's, some, there's some friendly hackers who go out there looking for uh, vulnerable bank systems. And just recently, last month, we're able to, to get an entire database of customer account names, account numbers, PIN numbers from, from a French bank. Wow. Yeah, uh, and, and the dollar losses can be really, you know, quite substantial. And another attack on a bank in Staten Island using a different kind of fraud called ATM rigging. That's where they install equipment at an ATM, lets them steal information on the account cards. They stole, a uh, hacker stole $500,000 from about 250 customer accounts. Mm. So those are, you know, those are attacks that go directly at the bank and at its systems, at its ATMs. But even more than that, the real risk for for customers are when hackers steal a customer's access credentials. We're talking about things like the customer's account number and PIN number or account number and uh, and password. And that's really the most common way that hackers get in there and steal money from customer bank accounts. Now, are they stealing those mostly from the bank or are they stealing those from the individual's computers? Well, the most common kind is when they steal it from the individual computers. And what they do is they use the common things you've heard about, such as a spear phishing. And, of course, in the online world, we spell phishing with a PH. Right. But there was a case uh, involving a company in, in Maine, Down East Energy and Banking Supply in Maine. And what, what that, in that case, what, what happened is that a hacker sent an email to a Down East employee that looked just like it came from Down East Bank, a uh, key bank. Mm. And the uh, the email included a link that took the employee to a website that all that looked exactly identical to Key West website. And then once the, uh, the the once the employee was there, he then entered in the account number and the password for some of the company's bank accounts onto this bogus site. That information got immediately sent to the hacker, and the hacker then used it to steal one hundred fifty thousand dollars from the company's bank accounts. Mm. Yeah, and the problem there is that KeyBank used, at least this is what uh, the customer said, used single-factor authentication. We'll be talking more about that this morning, I hope. Yes. And uh, single-factor authentication is an older form of bank security for bank accounts, and it actually just creates major security risks. Let's talk right now about what is, because somebody who might be driving by and then they get to work, they're going to get out, they wouldn't get to hear you. So let's let's have you explain the difference between single-factor authentication and multi-factor authentication, and what's best. Yeah, well, we're talking about single versus multi-factor. And uh, people who deal in bank security and just online security talk about three factors that uh, a bank can use to make sure it's dealing with a real customer. And when a bank uh, gets a request from an outsider to initiate, say, a wire transfer, it wants to make sure that that outsider is indeed its true customer and not some hacker. Right. Or some other unauthorized person. So what they do is they use three, three kinds of factors. Something the user knows. Yes. I like the password, the PIN, sometimes some other what they call shared secret, 
Banks will do things like say, you know, they'll have a challenge question. What is your favorite color? Or what's your, you know, what is the name of your pet? Yeah, or your favorite first grade teacher or something like that. Yeah. I, I, unfortunately, I'm too old to remember what my first grade <laughs> teacher's name was. But Or they'll have a pool of images. I, I kind of like this thing. They'll show you a bunch of images. They pick out the one leads you like best. Right, the crane it, or the donkey or something, yeah. Yeah, so that's <laughs> one thing, something that you know. The second concept, second factor can be something the user has. Right. In other words, they'll give you an ATM card, a smart card, a UBS token, that's actually like a little plastic thing you have to stick into your computer in the UBS port in order to initiate a wire transfer. It has to be there. Or your fingerprint, right? You put your finger there. Well, we're going to get to that. Oh, okay. Or, or, or uh, a, a, a password token. That's the kind right. you've seen where the number changes all the time. Right. You know, what you just referred to is the third factor, something the user is. Right. And like your finger is what you is. <laughs> right, right. Or your iris scan or something like that, some biometric information, huh? Yes, exactly right. And, and uh, in single-factor authentication, just one of those groups of uh, information will be used. Like, for example, typically they'll just use something that you know. They'll use just your account name, just your password, your PIN. Right. But in multi-factor authentication, they use things in these, from different categories. Like, a, you know, for example, when you go to an ATM machine, you're actually using multi-factor authentication because you have to use something that you have, right. i.e. your ATM card. Right along with something that you know, your PIN. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's basically two, right? Yes, that would be two factors. Unfortunately, in some cases, even using two factors is not enough. And right. We talked about the cases of ATM rigging, for example. And, you know, in those cases, they're able to use an ATM skimmer to get the information off the back of the ATM card. And then they use a camera to catch your PIN as you enter it into the, to the, to the, uh, onto the keypad. Right. So I always tell people, like, if you go up to an ATM machine, always look at it really, really carefully. And I would never use an ATM machine that isn't at a bank. I just feel very uncomfortable if, I, you know, especially when you go into a hotel and maybe there's a little ATM machine in the in a back uh, hallway, you know, kind of in a corner. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right, I, I've right. seen those like in San Francisco and stuff, and I'm, I'm always just terrified to use something like that and i see people using them because it's so easy there's nobody there to kind of look you know look out and see what's going on so it's always better to use an atm machine at a bank although at night if they have if they have an atm machine out you know in the back by the uh, parking lot mm-hmm. those also even if there's lights on somebody can go and rig something up so if you see something that looks a little strange you got a problem, or you know when they had the, and I don't know if this is still going on, but if your ATM card gets caught in there, and then somebody comes up and says, "Oh, I'll help you and take it out," that's that's usually one of the ways that they can uh, s- grab all the stuff that's on your ATM machine. I mean, your ATM card as well. So it's not a good idea to. If you see anything that looks strange, just don't even use that ATM machine, right? Uh, no question about it. But the strange thing is, even though you think ATM machine security may have, uh, may have limitations, remember a lot of banks for online transfers, which can involve tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, aren't even using the, uh, the security procedures that are present in an ATM transaction. They're just using the simple password and account number, the simplest and really uh, completely inadequate set of security procedures. Uh, it's insane. It's insane. Let me ask you something. How did you get to be such a techie? I'm not a techie. <laughs> <laughs> but you sound pretty good. You sound more, better than many, many of the people I've speak to. You seem to understand this. Did you just learn it from your clients? Uh, you know, what happened is I got involved very early on in my legal career in, um, in, in inter- Internet cases. I was involved in some of the very earliest key Internet cases. A lot of them initially involved things like um, Internet defamation, but also things such as um, cyber squatting. And I just got and developed a practice in this area. And I'd also, before I was an attorney, I spent 10 years as a CPA and spent a lot of time working on company internal controls. Oh. So, and yeah. And internal this, fraud, that kind of stuff? Yeah, definitely. Yes, that's right. And a lot of them were for, spent a lot of time working for uh, audits of insurance companies and banks. And so I think this, you know, this area just piqued my interest as it's developed over time. Well, this is such an important area. I mean, you're way ahead of the game because this is this is such a challenge right now. Why don't you explain what you mean by cyber squatting? Well, cyber squatting is a different um, 
is a whole different issue. Essentially what that is is uh, somebody has a trademark. Now, for example, Coca-Cola, that's the trademark of the Coca-Cola company. Mm-hmm. And in cyber squatting, somebody else who doesn't have any business using that name, doesn't have any business using the Coca-Cola name, will register a, um, uh, a domain name. In other words, a .com name. Right. They'll use, I love Coca-Cola.com. Uh, and they're essentially uh, trying to drive traffic to their site and trying to get business by trading on somebody else's trademark. That's right. essentially what cyber squatting is. Right. And I've seen where they've done business identity theft where people have actually taken the name of a company and made their own website. So that's either cyber squatting or identity th- or business identity theft. We see a lot of that, that people come to me with that. So uh, that I guess it would be both. It would be business identity theft and cyber squatting, wouldn't it? Uh, sure, sure. Uh, I know happily there are processes to deal with those kind of cases. Uh, there's a well-established process that the organization that controls the Internet, uh, ICANN, has set up to deal with cases like that, and we deal with them all the time. So what... Just tell me what the procedure is. I know I've I've used certain procedures in helping victims of identity theft and business identity theft. Why don't you explain for the, our business people driving by, if they see that somebody has done that to them, what are some of the things that they can do? There are a couple of things that they can do, the couple, uh, a couple of paths they can take. Um, one, the, the simplest path a lot of times is simply to send a letter or having your attorney send a threatening-sounding letter to the person that is misusing your, your trade name. Uh, and has gotten his registered internet domain name that kind of infringes in your trade name, and just tell them you're committing trademark infringement. You can be subject to some major liability. In many cases, this will be sufficient to have the squatter go away. Yeah, just like a cease and desist. A cease and desist letter. Right. Um, people are people are scared when somebody with, from a, from a big law firm sends them a letter that that just tells them all the liability that they can have. And really, in a lot of cases, that is sufficient. If that doesn't work. Uh, there are a couple of procedures that can be done. You can file a suit in federal court under the uh, ACPA, the Anti-Cyber Squatting Protection Act. Uh, you can do it that way. Another thing you can do is simply file a complaint um, using private arbitration through a system that ICANN, the organization, that, again, that runs the Internet, has set up. Uh, and a, a court, if it finds that the, uh, somebody has cyber squatted on your, on your trade name, will oftentimes it's ordered that that, 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 that um, domain name be transferred to the plaintiff. Okay, so if they get the no- domain name through Network Solutions or something like that, Network Solutions is ordered to just change that name? Yes, uh, well, actually to, to transfer it to the, yeah. the plaintiff. Right, to transfer it to the plaintiff, right. Yes. Huh. Well, we're speaking now with a wonderful attorney, David D. Johnson, who is of counsel in uh, Jeffer, Mangles, Butler, and Marmaro. LLP in Los Angeles, and he specializes in digital media law and complex litigation, and he writes a wonderful blog that I enjoy. It's digitalmedialawyerblog.com. Um, David, so let's talk a little bit more. We're getting back to the kind of procedures of these bad hackers. Um, what are banks doing to ramp up their security procedures right now? I mean, we're talking about little banks, medium banks, and I would imagine that this has something to do with uh, our security breach laws as, as well as maybe the red flag rules. Sure. Well, what they're, I think what the, most of them are doing is they're going to things like tokens. So in addition to using a password and a, an account number, you also typically the, the most common one is they use a one-time password token. And those are the ones you've seen that have the flashing numbers on them that change about every minute or so. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, I think that's the most common thing that, are, that is being done, using biometric uh, authentication gets to be a little more expensive and difficult. Uh, and, of course, um, they're also doing things, they're using things that are called reasonableness checks. In other words, once the person has uh, gotten through the uh, the account name, has put in the right password, and has inputted a number, say, off a token, okay, now they've gotten on the system, and the bank is ready to go ahead and initiate the bank, the wire transfer that's been requested, a bank can then do something else, a reasonableness check. It can say, okay, uh, let's look at the other transfers that this company has made. Now, has it ever made a transfer to Antigua before or to Hawaii right. before? You know, has it ever made a transfer? to the Philippines. Yeah. Nigeria. Right. Yeah, it can look and say, well, all the prior transfers it's made have been under $10,000. 
So here's one for $50,000 or $100,000. Is this reasonable? You know, or uh, another thing you can do is the company can give a pre-approved list of payees and say, we're only going to make transfers to these people. And if you see a transfer that's not to somebody who's not on this list, call us. Oh, that's a good idea. Very yeah. good idea. Now, do they call? Yes. Will the banks I mean, really call then? If, okay. if they've agreed to do this and they're supposed to call. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows what actually happens every time. But, yes, they're supposed to call in those circumstances. If they don't, if they have agreed to do this and then they, then they don't follow those procedures, of course, then they would bear the risk of any loss that occurs. Right. So they're doing things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good idea. And those are things that, e- that especially small and medium-sized banks and financial institutions can do, especially if they know their customers. That's something that they can do. I almost feel like, and although I have a big bank like Bank of America, sometimes I just really wish that I had a smaller bank that they really knew me and they knew my business well enough. Do you know what I mean? When I used to be a premier banker, but now they, they change the rules about premier banking and you got to invest everything that you own with them. Um, but I, I like the idea of the smaller and medium banks in, on one hand because they could get to know you and they could do those kinds of things for you more easily, I would think. Well, I, th- I, th- I think a bank of any size can do these things. If they're willing to take the time to do it, that's the problem. Yeah, but, but, of course, what the, what the, uh, the case we're here to talk about today, the Shama Sequel case, tells us yep. if they don't, <laughs> then they potentially stand to lose a lot of money. Right. Let's talk about that case. That, that's really how I found you, is I, I read your blog about that, the Shams Yeagel case. Tell my audience what really in, was involved. What were the facts of that case? Yeah, well, the Shamus Yeagels are a married couple, and they live in Indiana, just a typical couple. And like a lot of us, they had uh, both business and personal deposit accounts, i.e. checking accounts, savings accounts, with a bank called Citizens Financial Bank that does business in, in Indiana and Chicago. They also had a, ho- a home equity line of credit. Really, their profile is very much like a typical family. And what happened is that a hacker somehow obtained their ID and their password to get online and to get access to their online banking accounts. You know, and we don't know, unfortunately, from the court files, even though the case has been going on for some time, we don't know how the hacker got the information. We don't know whether they stole it you know, from the bank, an attack on the bank, or got it using some kind of a phishing expedition from the, from the Shamus Eagles directly. Now, did they test to see if my, maybe there was spyware in the computer or there was some kind of keylogging spyware or something like that on the, uh, on the couple's computer? At this point in the case, I have seen nothing in the, in the files, the court files that says anything like that went on. Okay. At this point, it's just unknown, at least in, publicly it's not been made known how the hacker got access to their, to their ID and their password. Okay. And so then what happened is that they, they then transferred $26,500 from the Shamus Eagles home equity line of credit to their checking account and then made a wire transfer to send this to a bank in Hawaii. And the Shamus Eagles, of course, they live in Indiana. They're not sending money to a bank in Hawaii. Right. Uh, the funds were then transferred from Hawaii to a bank account in Austria, uh, the Shamas Eagles found out about it a few days later, told the bank about it, but it was too late. They were not able to get the money back. So what about, what are people, and I've had couples that this has happened to that were victims of, you know, this kind of fraud and identity theft. What are the laws that protect couples when they see this, and when they tell them within a few days, when they tell the bank, what basically, what rights do the, does the couple have? Well, the law differs depending upon whether you're dealing with a deposit account, a typical checking account or savings account, versus a home equity line of credit, a credit account. And it also differs based on whether it's a business account or a personal account. And basically, if it's a customer account, excuse me, a consumer account, is what I mean to say. um, Like the home equity is considered a consumer account, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Or your typical personal checking account will be a consumer account. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, and if it's a deposit account, now the home equity line of credit is not a deposit account, it's a loan account. Right. But if it's a deposit account, it's for a consumer, well then the law really puts the burden on the bank, the burden of loss on a bank for hacker fraud. And a banker, a bank really has to pay all but the first $50 of losses uh, from, a, from, a, from a hacker fraudulent wire transfer. Now, and they usually even uh, just let that $50 go. 
that's my experience is if they do determine that it's fraud, they, they usually don't even say, you know, you have to pay that first $50. As a PR move. Now, yeah. now there, there are some, some laws that, that limit a bank's losses a little bit. Essentially says if you don't, if you know, if you, if you don't tell the bank about the, the false transfer within 60 days after getting your bank statement, or you don't tell the bank that you've lost your credit card or your, your debit card or your password within two days right. after you discover the loss, well, then the, then the bank, in certain circumstances, um, it, it, it can essentially recover the first $500 of its loss from you. Right. But, but, but even there, that, you know, I think, I think the, um, that's a facts and circumstances thing. And really, essentially, for consumer deposit accounts, the bank is on the hook for those. Right. Now, right. for business... But you have to tell them within 60 days. No, even if you don't tell them in 60 days. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, yes. All, all that does, if you don't tell them in the first 60 days, and then that contributes to the bank's loss, then the bank essentially gets to get the first $500 of the loss back from you. I see. Okay. okay. So, even, so really, the, the loss is on the bank. Okay. Now for, most of them will argue, though, that if you don't tell them within 60 days, you don't get any of that money back. Because I've had that happen to many clients that, that have lost money, that they were traveling out of the country, money was stolen, but um, interesting. Yeah, okay. in, in my view, that's not a proper view of the law. Okay. Good. Okay. Now, for, for business deposit accounts, it's a little bit different story. And uh, essentially what the law says is if the, the bank is required to have commercially reasonable security procedures in place to, to safeguard um, wire transfers, and if it does have those in place, um, then uh, for, uh, for insider embezzlement type wire transfers, and we're not talking about hacker fraud here. Right, right. But, you know, if, if like you own a business and your secretary, your bookkeeper, your CFO, whoever yeah. embezzles the money, well, then the customer bears the risk of loss for that. Right, because they say, well, you should be overseeing these people. Yes, but again, right. the bank still has to have reasonable security please, uh, procedures in place, commercially reasonable uh, procedures in place. Now, for outside hacker fraud, if the customer can prove the information that the person used to commit the fraud didn't come from him but came from a, a hacker, well, then the bank bears the risk of fraud. Um, but, you know, what banks try to do is they, even in this case, they'll try to limit their responsibility and they'll, they'll put in their contract with the customer a clause that says you're required to monitor your online bank account. And if you don't tell us about a fraudulent transfer on the same day it occurs, right. <laughs> or within a day after it occurs, then we're not liable. They'll, they'll put in clauses like that. Right. You know, right. And, I've seen those, yes. Yeah, in fact, you know, one of those clauses essentially exists in the Shamus Eagle case we'll talk about in a second. But, but from my point of view, those clauses, the, the effectiveness of those clauses is really questionable. Because if the bank didn't have proper security procedures in place in the first place, then it may not be able to use a clause like that to limit its losses. Wow. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I sometimes see these bank... Uh, contracts supposedly these booklets that you're supposed to get with your checking account and it's the the writing is in about eight to ten point type that you can't even read and then they have hidden in there we you know we won't look at the checks so if it's not signed you know it's really your responsibility to tell us or if there's any problem is your responsibility to tell us and you're exactly right i've seen this in in big banks all over the place they they all put this in their checking account uh, booklets that people don't even read. You know, the booklets are like 30 pages and they're, you know, these very tiny booklets that you're supposed to read that you get when you get your checking account and no one reads them. So you're right. I mean, they're going to try and do this. So so what happened in this with um, the bank wa tried to prove that they weren't liable in the Shames Yako case? What happened? Yeah, in the Shames Yako case is, is the... Um the, the bank actually had signed, and the Samus Eagles had agreed to a, an online banking business banking contract, which included a clause that said that the Samus Eagles were supposed to be monitoring their bank account, and the bank would not be liable if, for any unauthorized payment or transfer, that used the Samus Eagles password, um, unless the Samus Eagles notified the bank that their password had been stolen, and unless <laughs> the bank had, had a reasonable opportunity to act on that notice. Well, what happened is that the, the court simply disregarded that, that, uh, that contract provision because I think it did it on a fairly simple grounds. It could have used a number of different grounds, but it did use a very simple one. It simply said, hey, that's a clause in a business online banking application. 
but the money was stolen from a home equity line of credit account, and that's not a business account. So essentially, that agreement's irrelevant to this uh, to this issue, to this uh, this transaction, to this incident of theft. You know, it's not a business account uh, because you know the money from the account was used to fund personal purchases, not used for business purposes. Right. Right. And then and then the bank, you know, even though the uh, these laws we talked about, the this federal law that protects consumers for deposit accounts didn't apply, uh, the court found that negligence law, just a plain old tort law, uh, applied in this case. And under tort law, the bank was required to implement security procedures to protect its customer accounts. And it found that a bank just has a common law duty of care to its customers to secure its online banking system. And it found that the bank's failure to... to uh, expeditiously, you know, put into place state-of-the-art security procedures meant that it was liable and had not met its duty of care to the Shamashikals. So what, what was the negligence that the bank found? Well, uh, mind you, this, 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 is not, yeah, this case has not fully been litigated. This case was on summary judgment. Right, right. Okay, but they so, did talk about what they found, or they did talk about some of the security pro- procedures that weren't used, right? Yes, essentially what the, banks, what, what the court said is that uh, the bank had in place only this single-factor authentication. That's just that username and password uh, security procedure we talked about. And the court said that the uh, industry regulators have long ago said that that kind of authentication is not sufficient uh, to, to, for, to, for customer bank account security. There's an organization called the FFEIC. It just adds the alphabet soup of <laughs> government organizations that we don't, we don't we'll never remember in the future. But what the FFEIC is, it's an interagency uh, group that regulates uh, banks, credit unions, savings and loans, and establishes just procedures uh, operating procedures for those kind of, kind of institutions. And in 2006, the FFEIC issued a report that said that single-factor authentication is simply inadequate to protect security of bank accounts uh, used for transfers to outside to third parties. To, to third parties, and instead, you need to that what banks need to do is they need to be monitoring. You know, interestingly enough, it didn't didn't say you need to, to put into place a particular security protocol just said that single-factor authentication is not, not, not sufficient. Instead, you need to put in a security system that responds to the current threats. You need to be out there being aware of what the hackers are doing. You need to make sure you've got a security system in place that protects uh, your customer accounts in the light of those kinds of attacks, the attacks that are occurring today. And it recommended that people use multi-factor authentication, uh, but you know, even in many cases, that might not be sufficient. It simply really just said you've got to have a security system in place going to respond to current threats. So what do you think is going to happen in this case? When it's, is it, it's going to actually end up in going forward, am I correct? Yes, it's set for trial in January of next year. Uh, you know, I think that the writing is on the wall for this case. I think the writing is on the wall for this case. I think that uh, um, what's going to happen is that, a, that the plaintiff lawyer is going to say that the federal regulators have said that the method of security that this bank used isn't sufficient. Said it in 2006. So I think it's going to be a fairly easy decision for a jury once they realize that. Uh, so I, I, you know, my, my prediction is that uh, this looks like a plaintiff side victory is, you know, is, is on its way. And I think it's going to have great implications for other banks as they watch this case, isn't it? Why don't we talk about that? That banks can't just write in their little agreements or in their little booklets and and try and avoid liability. What do you think? Oh, and there's, there's no question about it. I think that uh, banks cannot ignore the standards that are in the industry that are already present in the industry, such as set up by the FFEIC, that say you have to respond to to the current state of the art threats by hackers. You have to keep up with the arms race. If hackers are able to penetrate your bank security systems, you can't sit back and say, well, we're going to let it happen and the customers bear the risk. You have to get in there and you have to update your security procedures to, to essentially address and prevent those risks. So I think, yes, I think it's going to have a big impact for, for banks all around the country. And I say banks, I'm referring to also savings and loans and credit unions as well. Right, right. And h- how realistic is this for these guys to keep up with these hackers? Well, uh, we've already talked about procedures that it, really any bank can put into place 
to, that would help mitigate some of these risks. For example, right. we talked about the, the, the pre-approved transferee list. And I hear the people that I have agreed in advance to make to, that I will be making wire transfers to. And so bank could, could, I think, fairly easily have a system where they, they, looked at, they, they simply cross-checked the proposed transfer against the pre-approved list. And if the, the payee is not on that list, they call the customer up and say, hey, you know, is this payment legitimate or not? So I think, I think that they can keep up the arms race. And the fact of the matter is they really have to. Because if they, if they don't do it, they're going to start incurring really large losses. Now, you know, yeah. one, one of the big risks that the regulators are concerned about are risks to the, to the, to the uh, reputation of banks and the reputation of the banking system. And if, if uh, attacks against the customer accounts um, and business accounts increase and businesses start losing more and more money, incurring hundreds of thousands of dollars in losses, they'll lose confidence in the banking system. So banks simply have to respond if they want to survive. I think there's been so much uh, distrust of banks lately with all that has gone on with the mortgage and the lending industry and now the credit reporting and the credit uh, credit card industry that it is, it's a rough time for them. It is a rough time for banks and it's a rough time for consumers to trust. So what about, will the, will the court's ruling in, in Seamus Hugel apply nationwide, do you think? Well, yeah, of course, this was a ruling from a just one state court. It's not going to have direct what you call precedential effect mm-hmm. on other states. But, um, but yes, I think it's going to essentially have great persuasive authority. Um, now, regardless of the, the, the particular standard that's applied in the state, and states do have different standards, and, and you know, the, uh, some of the rules under federal law use different, different terms, different standards. Some say that a bank has to have commercially reasonable security. Others say that a bank has to meet a reasonable standard of care in providing security. I think it all comes down to the same thing. Uh, if you're not following the FFEICI guidance, and if you're not constantly updating your, your systems to meet current hacker threats, then you don't have a commercially reasonable system, uh, and you can be found liable. And here's really kind of the unique uh, additional thing about the Shamus Eco case, is that this was a decision that found them liable for tort damages. Uh, in a lot of these other cases, the law doesn't really give the uh, customer right to, to recover tort damage. Now, what do I mean by tort damages? I mean damages for mental anguish and suffering. But the court in the Shamus Eco case said that, that the couple could get, could, could get their money back, and they could also get additional damages for the grief they'd had to go through because of the process. Emotional distress, mm-hmm. Yes, uh, mental and emotional anguish for something like this. So... Uh, so this really kind of expands potential liability that banks have from hacker breaches if they're not taking action to provide ad- adequate, adequate security. Mm-hmm. I also think that banks really need to be concerned about statements they make in marketing brochures and advertising, you know, statements that to customers such as, we're, you know, we're committed to your security, and we right. have state-of-the-art procedures in place to protect, the, you know, to protect your money. And we're doing what we can to protect the privacy of your personal information. They make statements like that, but they haven't implemented a state-of-the-art procedures to protect against hacker attacks. If they're not following the regulatory guidance, then I think they stand a real chance of being held liable for misrepresentation. And, in fact, we have seen a number of cases already brought that are using a misrepresentation theory against banks. Tell us about a couple of those. Yeah, some of the recent cases... Um, that just happened just in the last couple of months, kind of in the wake of Shamus Jekyll. Uh, one is the Western Beaver School District case. Uh, this is against a bank in um, in Maine, I, I believe, Ocean Ocean Bank in Maine. Mm-hmm. And uh, a hacker in that situation, excuse me, Pennsylvania. I kept, there are a number of cases involving Maine recently, but this is a Pennsylvania case. Okay. Uh, anyway, the Western Beaver School District in Pennsylvania, it just sounds like a Pennsylvania school district, doesn't it, I suppose? Yeah. <laughs> Um, during Christmas break, you know, a hacker got access to their, to their computer system and added 42 individuals to the school's payroll account, Just added some additional uh, employees, like maybe the hacker himself. Oh, <laughs> and, and then started to pay, started to transfer money to accounts of these employees in places in California and Puerto Rico. And, and pay them from very, very large sums. And hmm. during a four-day period of time... Like payroll? Yes. Payroll Interesting. Transfers. So they even took out, uh, did they also take out taxes? 
<laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so they, they they sent up 40, 74 additional payroll wire transfers to these new, these new uh, excuse me, 74 additional wire transfers to these new 42 employees involving $700,000. Wow. Um, and 441 has never been recovered to this very date. Mm. And so Western Beaver has now sued and said, hey, you know, you should have noticed these red flags. You should have noticed that there were payments to 42 new individuals we never paid before in far off places. Right. Big payments in a t- very short time over Christmas break. And how many how many people would they have that would have been outside the state working for them? Uh, you know, quite a few. No question, oh, really? Quite a few. Oh, they would. They already did have quite a few people that worked outside of the state. Oh, I'm sorry, you asked. You know, me. I'm saying, how reasonable would that be when you're looking at the the standards that they or the you know normal procedures that most of their employees would have been in state? You would think in Pennsylvania. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, and then if the, you get them in California, what are they what are they doing as employees in California? Precisely, exactly <laughs> right. So they said you should have had reasonable procedures to to kind of say, wait a minute, this is an anomaly or what? Yes, exactly right. And you know, and here they would simply, in terms terms of their legal case against the bank, they'd say, well, the FFEIC, the regulators, just said you need to have multi-layered security in place. In other words, you need to have things like reasonableness checks, just like this. If you had that in place, then it would have, you know, been very obvious that we don't have teachers in Puerto Rico, we don't have teachers in California and right. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania school system. Right. Uh, you know, another case that's uh, got a lot of... So is that, is that just going on now, or ha- has that actually been adjudicated? What's going on with that one? The suit has just been filed. Okay. okay. It's just been filed. So on the, the, these are all brand new suits that, uh, you know, they have not really been adjudicated yet, so we don't know how the courts are going to rule, but... Now, that's a business account as opposed to the Shames Yanko, which was a, a, a home equity account. So now you're talking about a business account. That's still saying you should have those reasonable procedures, and they should. And reasonable is determined by the uh, the various federal agencies, right? Well, uh, reasonable procedures are, are, are is not a very well defined term. Yeah, that's what I'm asking you. Yeah, yeah and and in the the law I'm talking about is the the, the uh, either deal both with personal and with business accounts. Just say it needs to be commercially reasonable, a reasonable standard of care, and don't really tell you what that is. Uh, right. You know, the laws deal with businesses say that it needs to meet prevailing industry standards. You know, so what is that? Well, to me, <laughs> the best place to go for that are the, is the, uh, excuse me, are the rules laid down by the regulators. Right, like the FDIC, the, yeah. Well, this, this organization you keep talking about, the FFEIC, works yes. for the FDIC. Right. And they, they essentially put out rules that are to be used when a bank examiner goes in and examines the bank to see whether their procedures mean that the bank is secure and sound or not. Right, so right. Essentially, a bank has got to meet F, uh, FFEIC standards in order to, to pass its, its yearly examination. Now, so, had, had this other bank in uh, the Shames Yackel, had they passed their yearly examination? Do you know? The records don't tell us on that oh. issue. But, but the, the point is that the standards that are being set down, what, what, what actually happened in that case is they were in the process of changing. They were in the process of putting in a... Um, uh, you know, they'd seen the FFEIC guidance probably, and they were oh. in the process of putting tokens in place. I gotcha. They were slow on the uptake. Right. That's the problem. They were slow on the uptake. And so it's not just an issue of, well, a bank can eventually get around changing its security. It's got to do it quickly. It's got to expeditiously mm-hmm. put new security procedures in place. So, yeah, they, they may have, uh, again, the records uh, that we've got, the court records don't tell us about the examination, but maybe they, they maybe they told the examiners, okay, we'll change our system. But then they waited too long, right? Long enough for a hacker to take advantage of the security breach. But I would think that that in discovery they would have found out that uh, you know that would be very helpful to the plaintiff if they found out that the examiners said, hey, you you need to change to multi-factor authentication and you need to do it right away. And they hadn't done it, that would show more negligence. No question about it. No question yeah. about it. Yeah. So um, now there's a bunch of these cases being filed looking at this issue of of um, can, you know, that the banks cannot shift liability like they've been getting away with, right? Yeah, well, no, banks can still attempt to shift liability. They, they, can, they can still, there's, there's no, um, now for, the, for, for dealing with, with, with consumer bank transfers, the law says that a bank cannot put a clause in this contract with a consumer waiving their liability. It's actually, it's actually part of the federal law is the bank can't waive those, those protective provisions. 
there is no rule like that directly for, for, for business bank accounts. You know, however, I, I think the problem is that uh, a bank is still required by law to maintain commercially reasonable security procedures, and it can't waive that, re- that, that requirement. It always must maintain commercially reasonable security procedures. So if a bank has a clause in its contract saying you've got to monitor and report fraud losses to us immediately, but it hasn't been, uh, it doesn't have reasonable security procedures in place, well, the customer can say, well, you breached the contract by not having those in place. So you can't rely on that clause that makes me monitor the account and get away with a fraud loss that your breaches and your failures have caused. You know, I wanted to ask you, this, this is a, a thing that's happened to a lot of people. You know, when people use a check, the, um, the routing number and the account number are really all that the bank looks at. You know, they use those readers to, to, to read the bottom of the check. Mm-hmm. And I have seen from many victims of identity theft that um, their bank number and the routing number has been used uh, to create new checks that they get from any of the office uh, stores, office you know depot or whatever, and they make these checks up, and the check might say maybe it was your account, uh, David, and it says you know David John. It doesn't say David Johnson on the check, even though it's your account number and your routing number, and it's but it doesn't say David Johnson. Maybe it says Tom Smith. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have David Johnson up in northern, you know, up in Los Angeles. It has uh, Tom Smith in San Francisco or Miami Beach, and it has a, a totally different address. And it's not, it's not your name on it at all. And in fact, let's say you have a Bank of America account, but it, it says something like Chase Bank on it. Okay. I have seen many times that the bank will just process the checks. Because it doesn't look at anything on the check except what it automatically reads through the readers. And banks will try and say that that um, if you don't tell them within 60 days about that, right, that you're not going to get your money back. And, and by the way, we don't have any duty to look at that. And I'm talking about a personal account. We don't have any duty to look at it because if you read your agreement with us, it says that because we are required to process these checks in such a short period of time, we can't look at it. We ought, we do everything automated. So therefore, you have a duty to look, even though we're not sending you your checks, you have a duty to go online and look at the front and back of the check. And if you see anything wrong within 60 days, you have to tell us. So um, that's kind of shifting the liability too. Yes, a lot of similar issues. And although the law on checks is really a different a whole different uh, area of law than for, for, for wire transfers, but the law does place a lot of responsibility on banks to make sure that they have an authentic check. The banks do have the first responsibility for it um, as well. But they do try and shift that responsibility, and I can tell you right from Bank of America, it tells you right in their checking account uh booklet, which is supposedly your agreement. And obviously, I've gotten around that and I've gotten my client's money back. But they, but a lot of people don't get their money back because they don't know that the bank really can't shift that responsibility, especially when they don't even look at the, at the check itself. Right, right. And I mean, people have even within the 60 days have said, well, gee, you know what? Um, sorry, that, 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 you know, we don't have any duty to look at that. And if there's uh, consequential damages where people write their own checks and they don't know that this is going on, then they end up with problems because they wrote a check that then bounced because all the money was taken out of their account or they can't pay their rent. It causes all sorts of hassles with um, the banks just shifting the the liability to to the consumer. Yeah, I, I think I think banks realize that this is a serious issue, and and they they uh, they they do a lot of this. It will begin to undermine the confidence of the public in the banking system, and they and they don't want that. The banks are trading on is their ability to keep their customers' accounts secure, right? And they they, they really can't let this issue slide. I don't, I don't think most of them want to. I don't think most of them are. We're speaking with David D. Johnson, who is an attorney of counsel in Jeffers, Mangles, Butler, and Marmaro LLP in Los Angeles, and he specializes in 
digital media law and complex litigation. You can read his very interesting blog, which I've been reading at digitalmedialawyerblog.com. So, David, what advice do you offer banks in, in the wake of Shame's Eagle case? What, sh- what should they be doing? So people who are driving by right now, who work for banks, who are banks, what, th- what should they be thinking about and doing? You know, just real simply, don't, don't try to stay out of the cybersecurity arms race. Uh, you know, you know, don't bury your head in the sand. The, uh, the guidelines for the regulators require you to be constantly assessing risk for online fraud and designing a security system that responds to the current threat. So follow those guidelines and just do that. You know, keep aware of the latest in cyber fraud and just make sure that you have procedures in place that are designed to respond to the, the current hacker attacks. Um, and I also think it's important to get customers engaged in monitoring online security. We've talked about they have these clauses in these contracts uh, requiring customers to do this. I think that that's actually a good idea. It's a good idea to to talk to tell customers about the potential liabilities that are out there, potential risks that are out there, and to get them involved in monitoring their online security and in making sure that they're not giving away passwords and they're not they're not they're not, they're not choosing obvious passwords. They're not leaving tokens out where people can get access to them. That they know about phishing scams and things like this. In other words, educate your customers and get them involved. And this will also greatly reduce the chances of losses from, from wire transfer fraud. You know what really is um, disconcerting, I think, is I tell people never, ever respond or uh, click on a URL that's, that's in any kind of a email that you get because it's, it's most likely going to be a phishing, P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, phishing to try and hook you in. Um, but you know what I've noticed? There are banks and there are companies that still ask you to click on, uh, you know, on the URL and check something, even though they know and they tell you not to do this, um, to be careful of phishing, but they are still doing that. So, you know, they should be telling you in an email, look, to check something, go to the URL that you know, you know, to the address that you know for us and go there. Don't click here because, uh, you know, there may be some, Fishing. I mean, it's unbelievable that that banks would ever even ask you to click something within the email that they're sending you. When in fact, on the other hand, you're you're not supposed to do that. Yeah, essentially, they're conditioning a customer to think that that kind of an email inquiry could be appropriate. Yes. So you know, they should say never ever click on something, but they don't. They're very inconsistent with their marketing, for example. And I think that's what's really hard for people because they get caught in these phishing scams because these phishing scams are quite um, sneaky. <laughs> you know, I just read about one. I'm, I'm a member of the anti-phishing uh, working group, and I just saw something about something from the IRS that said that it really wasn't from the IRS, but it said, you know, we have been hearing about a lot of the fraud and, and to protect yourself so that you don't get fished, you know, go here. <laughs> And it was very, uh, I thought it was very clever. Some of these hackers are extremely, uh, you know, quite astute about this. That's right. If you say that something is not a crime, then I guess it can't be a crime, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so what other advice do you have for consumers? Well, um, I would say that consumers can be on the hook for modest losses if, if they don't report the loss of a stolen credit card or debit card or if they think their authentication credentials have been compromised, they don't report those within a very short time, two days. Oh, you know, they can also be on the hook for losses if they don't report fraudulent transfers within two months of getting, the, uh, getting their bank statement on which those transfers you know, are, are reported. So they, they really do need to monitor what's going on with their financial documents and make sure that they do report losses quickly. It's, it's, uh, it'll help reduce their own losses, and it helps reduce the losses of the system entirely. We don't want banks losing money either, even though, you know, I know they're bigger than we are and stronger, but we still don't want them losing money either. We want to help them help us. Uh, and for, for businesses, uh, I would say that you can be on the hook for big losses, uh, even despite cases like Shama Zekel. Uh, you can be caught on the hook for big losses, especially if some insider... Uh, some embezzler um, initiates a fraudulent transfer, 
or you can be on the hook for big, big loss potentially based on terms in your contract with the bank we talked about before. So get involved in the security process. Work with the bank to develop a security system that will work for your business. And also monitor your, your account activity and quickly report any kind of questionable activity. This will reduce your losses and, again, reduce the losses with your partner, the bank. What about, now I know you work and, and you help large companies. What about the small to medium-sized companies? How can they get the kind of um, legal help that they need to keep up with everything from Gramm-Leach-Bliley to, you know, the, the if they're a financial institution, a small one, or how can they keep up with the red flag rules? How can they keep up with all this stuff that they have to do to be compliant and to protect customers. I think it's pretty overwhelming for many of these smaller companies. Well, of course, they can call me. I'll give a shameless plug for myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love it. They can, they can, they can reach me at, um, at my offices. In my, uh, I have a website that I every day publish articles on digital media issues. It's uh, www.digitalmedialawyerblog.com, and they can find my address and my phone number on that. And there are also, of course, a lot of companies that specialize in bank security and are getting the word out. And, and they, they, a lot of times, they'll have programs that can make it easy for banks to comply with these, with these rules and to, prevent, and to protect themselves from losses. And businesses as well, too, to comply with the rules and protect themselves from losses. And, you know, I, I worry about when you were talking about what consumers should be doing um, Often, you see on websites and you see from a lot of the banks, they tell, you know, protect yourself from identity theft. When you're talking about what happened in this case, for example, there was really nothing that uh, this couple could have done to protect themselves from these hackers, was there? Well, uh, we we don't know. We, We don't know how the sticker hack occurred. So we don't know whether they responded to a phishing scam or what, or whether they, the hackers got information from the bank directly. So it's possible that they could have protected themselves by simply being aware of online uh, hacker techniques and, and, and by avoiding them. So yes, consumers can help themselves by just getting aware of the techniques being used by hackers and trying to stay away from them. Right, but when there is, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that there are times that there are, like the TJ Maxx or or many of the other hacks, the Heartland that we've heard about, that really are totally beyond the control of the consumer or the customer. So I, I worry about people being able to really protect themselves when in fact a lot is beyond their control. A lot of times you can't. A lot of times a customer can do very little to protect themselves when there's been a data security breach that's secured at a retailer, like you're talking about the TJX case, right? or against a credit card processor, like in the Heartland case. In both, in the Heartland case, they actually used what I talked about earlier on, an SQL injection attack, where they, where they, they penetrated um, Heartland security at the, at the uh, logon screen stage. Um, so, yeah, you can't do anything about that. However, in those cases, consumers have done very well and have I, I believe, as far as I can know, I have, I have followed those cases pretty closely. As far as I know, they have gotten their money back in those cases. It may have taken a while, but uh, the the consumer plaintiff's bar, you know, did a decent job of getting the money back for the consumers in those cases. And the FTC also uh, got involved in both those cases to make sure the customers got taken care of. Right. So this is a, a real tough. A project dealing with these very astute hackers and all the creative ways that they can get into our banks and into our own computers. So we want to thank you so much, David. You're really uh, wonderful and you're really very well versed in this. And we'd love to have you come back and let us know what happens in these cases. Can you do that? I, I certainly will. I enjoy talking with you, Mari. Okay, so give us your blog uh, URL and Mangles, your uh, law firm. URL as well, and we'll have people go and visit. Great. Well, my blog, again, is is www.digitalmedialawyerblog.com. And that's my own personal webpage. My firm is Jeffrey Mangles, Butler Marmoreau, as Mari said. And our firm website is www.jmbm.com. Well, you're wonderful. So we appreciate very much, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. 
You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every week on Monday mornings from 8 to 9 a.m. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you can see our upcoming guests in their bios. You can look at our previous guests and listen to archived interviews. You can download podcasts and please write us emails about what's important to you in the information age and protect your privacy. Thank you. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.